as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. Nicole Williams, welcome to the podcast. Hello. So uh, we are Friday morning super early because I wanted to find a way for us to have a conversation. And this is a difficult conversation to start, not because you are... um, Uh, difficult to talk with, but it's hard to put you in context for the farmer scientist audience that I'm interviewing. So just to start off, where are you living and what do you do for a living, Nicole? Yeah, uh, currently I'm living in Northern Virginia, but soon to be in DC. And I just made almost this sort of career shift to venture capital, investing in sort of frontier technologies at a seed stage firm called Compound. But before that, I was studying data science at Lambda School, and before that, I was working at this startup that sort of uh, created these experimental educational programs, and before that, I was at Liberty University. So I have been sort of all over the place as my Twitter's representative, of, I would say. So you seem uh, very young to have this, this much of a career. How long were you at each of these different things that you were talking about? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I definitely did. A lot of these things were overlapping. I was at college for, well, at at Liberty for exactly one semester. And then immediately after that, I started working at a software company, subsidiary of Gartner, researching software in the world that is weird niche softwares. Um, And then during that, I was sort of creating an education for myself, sort of asking what do I want to learn about the world and how can I still be learning it without paying $20,000 a year for university? Um, And then after that, I worked at a startup for about a year and went through medical technology accelerator working on something, uh, some technology that I was thinking about. Um, And then Lambda School, which is nine, well, six months for me. And then now DC and I'm 22. So four years, that all fit in there. And so, like, this is an unusual thing for somebody to be at a venture capital fund and uh, helping advise on investments. Uh, You you kind of describe that you're a self learner. What what is the draw to this and this kind of wild career? Yeah, I think for me, oh man, I think about education a lot. Education is something that's super important to me, and I'm definitely not anti academia or anti university. I think there's like. I love the idea of these places, but I think often they're not a good fit. People are sort of forced into like a few very large boxes for their education. They don't realize that there are other potentials. And so for me, a lot of what I was interested, whether it's data science or um, sort of like weird philosophical readings, it was hard to find that in one educational package. And so I just sort of started just basically quizzing all my friends that went to universities. I like saying, give me your syllabi, give me your readings, give me your data science, um, like knowledge or textbooks and put together a big syllabi that I started sort of self-working through. I think a lot of people during coronavirus, uh, when they went into the lockdowns, had these uh, grand aspirations to teach themselves new things and to to get very regimented you're talking about doing this not just for um, coronavirus, but as a way of living. And a lot of people are like, yeah, you could get a college education with a library card, but most people don't have the discipline to do it. So how have you been able to manage to not just be aspirational, I want to learn these things, but actually take the time to read it and, and learn? Yeah, it's definitely hard. Like, I won't say that doing like MOOCs, which is a big thing, whether it's Coursera, edX, you can technically get that like Stanford class taught to you online um, by a lot of professors now. But online education is extraordinarily hard, as I think we're all learning in quarantine. Um, 
honestly, I think surrounding yourself with opportunities to talk about the thing that you're learning to like reiterate that information and also just be excited about like re-remember the original reason you decided to like pace through this super long textbook by yourself is super essential. So I like to go to a lot of like random like lectures on the topic and just sort of like start talking to people, see if the education really sunk into my brain. And have have you learned enough to be able to apply it? I mean, you were working at a software startup and like, did you know enough from your self-teaching to just jump in? Yeah, I think so. When I was working at the startup, it was it was a lot more amorphous. I wasn't technically a software engineer at the time, but I was basically getting to talk with a lot of like cool science agencies. So we worked with like NASA and NIH and ARPA-E. And so it was a lot less applied at the time, which gave me more space to do applied studying basically on my own after work. I would ask the two co-founders, I would say, hey, there's this like white paper I want to understand. Like what math do I need to be able to understand this? And we would sort of work backwards once I already had that like applied piece of knowledge I want to understand. And often that, that piece of knowledge I was working towards would come from meetings or whatever. Um, somebody would mention something and be like, wait, that sounds really interesting. That connects these areas of other things that I'm interested in. And so. Um, I think applied then less so Lambda school is really helpful for that. Um, just building like a very, like a list of products in a short amount of time, you're sort of forced to get good at that applied education, but also just forcing yourself to apply the knowledge day to day. It's like learning a language. You have to just talk about the things you're learning. Yeah, that's right. You can't learn. I mean, like I studied Spanish in high school for a couple of years and then took college level Spanish. But it wasn't until I went to work for a paving company where I was surrounded every single day by people speaking Spanish that I was like, oh, that's how the language works. Like, oh, that's why you need nouns and verbs and conjugation. Yeah, I think that's a benefit too, honestly, to to self-education, because a lot of times it's really challenging, even if you are the most experienced educator to keep your curriculum aligned with the real world, I would all almost say even it's impossible. And that's why like the case for liberal arts education is so strong. You're setting like a foundation, not like an exact experimental like place for a person to learn the thing that they're going to do in the real world. And so if you maybe don't have the money or the time to go through like a four-year degree in many ways, like putting yourself in that real world environment in any way that you can, even if it means like for me, it meant taking jobs that were not super ideal sometimes. Um, being able to sort of put yourself in that environment where you're getting the application, you're, you're seeing all the stuff that like no university professor can realistically keep up with was really high probe for the whole self-learning situation. I think that somebody that goes on the self-learning path that you've gone on, like you are really betting on your own sales ability because most everybody else has this little warm piece of paper that keeps them warm. And then when they want to apply for a job, then they just put that piece of paper forward and I can belittle it, but I have that, right? Like if I, if I get into a situation where I had to go apply for a job, I'd be able to say, well, look, I have this, these degrees, they prove my, my intelligence, my ability to work, my ability to get things done. Does that frighten you at all, living in this world? Yeah, I think it's, it definitely is. I don't know if I would say frightening. I think it would say it's very motivating. Like I'm motivated by the idea of, of a challenge. And so knowing that the decisions I make about my education have to provide, like at the end of the day, they have to provide value in some way, not in terms of like a just very strong productivity framework for everything I'm learning, but like, I'm really forced to evaluate everything I would be learning in a way that I don't think I would have been forced to think about in university. And so 
it's sort of invigorating, honestly. It's also invigorating to be able to talk to people about this and be like, I chose to learn all of these things. I chose to learn all of these things because they fit into this narrative of how I'm interested in the universe. And that's not something a lot of people can say. Um, and so I think even that talking point alone is compelling when I talk to other people. Like, you decided to read that textbook yourself. Like, your professor didn't make you do that. And it was still interesting. And I'm like, yeah, it, honestly, it was. It was pretty interesting. So. Yeah, I mean, that definitely sets you apart. And I think uh, it's represented in your Twitter feed, right? Like, because you don't have a standard curriculum, right? You're not being like, well as most sophomores that have gone through college have this much education and they quote these types of things or they think these things, your Twitter feed is the feed that I try and point people towards when I'm like, you need to get out of your network and find something different. And I don't mean it in terms of like, go find somebody you can argue with. I'm saying, go find somebody that thinks about things that you don't even think are real or have no concept that this is something important in the world. And your feed is a constant stream of that. Oh, yeah, I, I feel like that's part of why I like Twitter is like a, a good portion of my tweets, I would say, are just me saying, hey, what about this weird niche of the universe? Like, does anybody who studied this exist? And then suddenly 10 people come out of the woodwork and they're like, oh, yeah, when I was, you know, studying in Colombia, you know, I met this person who told me all about this book and this area of study. And I'm like, great. Like, once you sort of invest in that like knowledge of like fringe parts of the world it sort of compounds and then people who are also interested in that come towards you and it's just this great like large rolling snowball of weird knowledge how do you think about who you follow who you let into your attention stream on twitter Ooh, i would say people who it's it's very hard to explain but when you look at somebody's feed i think you can really tell whether they're trying to like <clears throat> whether they're trying to fit a certain image, like there's stereotypes of like all the corners of Twitter and the people they tweet, the people they retweet, the people they like. But if you go to somebody's feed and it's just like a hodgepodge of interesting, weird thoughts, and they're not really concerned about like optimizing for retweetability or optimize for optimizing for looking cool, that's like a really high signal to me. I would rather people who are just genuinely curious about the world that have like, much less experience or much less like whatever else it may be. That's the most interesting person on Twitter to me. Yeah. I interviewed Yosha Bach a few months, maybe a couple months ago. And he uses this term all the time, normie, which like um, <laughs> I am quintessential normie. Like everything about me was, you know, go on to college, go do these normie things. But when I think about like the idea that you're describing there on, Hey, I'm going to post something out into the world is this something that anyone could post just because it occurred to them or they've seen this? Uh, it's basically, I think a lot of people on Twitter are an echo. They heard somebody say something, they maybe changed it slightly and pushed it out into the world. And I, like, when I think about that, I definitely don't want to be that. And then you kind of go through this whole thing. Well, am I scheming then to try and be something I'm not? But I think there's something too trying to find out, like, I only want to add into this conversation something that is enlightening in some way. But I, it's hard to describe how to create that value. Yeah. Okay. It's also really crazy that you mentioned him because I followed him on Twitter for a while because he's sort of like in the AI space, but I didn't really know who he was. And I went to this conference in Prague 
And he was one of the speakers and his speaker was great. His speech was great. Um, but I feel like that is such a testament to the way Twitter connects you to these people you'd be interested in real life preemptively. And often you don't even realize that sometimes somebody will follow me for a while and I'll be like, I know they exist and they'll DM me and they'll be like, Hey, I see you're coming to New York or San Francisco. Do you want to get coffee? And I meet them in real life. And it's like, somebody that the universe has selected for me as a friend like I wouldn't have even been able to do this for myself and it works out phenomenally but um yeah back to normies there's definitely a lot of normies on Twitter I would say posting things that someone else said that you think are great isn't necessarily bad like there's definitely a space to that I post so many quotes I post so many that type of thing as well but I think people I just like people who feel comfortable with voicing whatever weird thoughts or patterns they might notice at the edge of fields of study and how do you take criticism on twitter is it something you're open to like i i feel like yeah it's got to be a weird experience for somebody that puts things out there that are so far away from normie world yeah it's, it's definitely odd it depends what it's about it's definitely also like gone up recently because sort of the network of people that i actually talk to more often that know like the way I tweet or when I'm joking or what things I'm genuine about has decreased relative to my follower size. And so there's a lot of people who are just sort of like, why are you tweeting this thing? And I'm like, it's ironic, but I can't explain that to every person who res responds to me. So I don't know, people for the most part aren't that bad, but most of the time I'll sort of like take it to the DMs if it's something I really feel like I need to respond to because it can be, everything feels like it's like a, like a public decree when you're responding to somebody on Twitter sometimes. And so you just got to talk to them personally, which I think is the same thing in real life. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. And like, sometimes you just put something out there to test an idea. And I'm not even trying to defend that idea. I'm putting it out there because I'm like, hey, I genuinely want to know if somebody has a different way of thinking about this. But suddenly yeah. it becomes like, you have to defend this idea to the death. And like, right. I wasn't really prepared for that when I threw it out on Twitter. Yeah. And I think that's dangerous too, right? Because like, that starts that is the trail down to radicalism where everybody's like, okay, you put this thing out there, you need to defend it. You need to like stand up for this idea that you put into the universe. And sometimes it's like, no, you told me that like this thing about it, you know, maybe was like less compelling than I thought. And we came to a good agreement there. And like, that's the, that's the point of Twitter. And so, yeah, I think people can be too like, okay, now I feel the need to defend myself. This is serious and I have to defend my Twitter honor. And it's, it's just not that serious. <laughs> You've used the word radicalization uh, twice now, which is an interesting word, right? Uh, particularly if you're saying I came from this kind of evangelical background and I'm, I think about radicalization on Twitter. What does that word mean to you? Oh, man. Um, it's hard to answer because I think, especially within the lens of religion, I have a lot of like empathy for people on any of the ends of the radicalization spectrum here. But I do think, you know, coronavirus has made the people who who are a little bit radicalized more apparent where I would say it just means if you aren't looking at everyone semi-critically, you're open to something, hearing something not positive about a person that you really trust, whether that's Jerry Falwell, the, the, the um, head of the university I went to who said that coronavirus was created by North Korea as a bioweapon, there's some people who are like, all right, he said that. So that's, that's the truth. For me, it's less about what you believe and more about, are you willing to just hear other people's opinions? Somebody who's radical is not willing to hear other people's opinions. 
That's a great point. And actually, that's one of those things where you can apply that lens to yourself. You know, I'm thinking about this. So yesterday, I got done with a run and I um, tweeted a conversation that you and I had had before about like how I'm really worried about masks. And so I was saying, hey, I think there's a big downside to this. It lowers the amount of communication you can have. Like you can't tell somebody's intent. And I put this out there and uh, people, some people loved it, right? They were tweeting about it and putting it out there like, hey, this is the truth, you know, in all caps. Mm -hmm. And then there were other people being like, how dare you? And, and then other people writing me on DMs being like, hey, this is another way to think of it. And by this morning, I think I've changed part of my opinion on this. But like, uh, I feel like the most uncomfortable part about putting that tweet out there was that people were taking it and writing like 100% truth, 100% right. Because at the first it's like, yeah, look at that. Look, I found some truth. And then you're like, wait a second. I may be doing something bad here. Like I may be riling people up. I may be creating divisiveness. Like this may have been a bad idea. Right. Yeah. It's It's the same deal with Elon Musk, right? I've been talking to so many people about this where it's like, you can think Elon Musk is tweeting incredibly stupid stuff. He's like has some stupid opinions, but you can also recognize that he's like made jumps for a few different industries, like significant jumps. And you can hold both of those two at the same time and recognize them as true. And so many people just have an incredibly hard time with that. And I think often those people overlap with Twitter and Twitter is just like a place to get out your anger. Um, but if everybody can just listen to other people's opinions a little bit more, it'd be a better place. <laughs> so, you know, you're working on machine learning and artificial intelligence, and these are big words that encompass huge volumes of people's perspective about what they mean. But when you think about the world of perspective and nuance and social media feeds, along with AI and machine learning, what, what comes to mind for you? Oh, man. <laughs> I feel like I tweet about this so often. Um. <sighs> we are going into an age of like unprecedented change in terms of the way algorithms dictate things. I think my pinned tweet right now is like this idea of algorithmic populism, which is that things that are defined, that are things where your experience is heavily curated by an algorithm. Um, and it's a large volume of people where their experience is being curated by an algorithm. So for example, um, Amazon search, uh, that is radically flattening people's taste so if you look at, for example, maybe you, ser- maybe you search t-shirt on Amazon, the thing you're going to get served up to you is no longer the experience you might have had on just Google or even like an older web search where you would get this like these boutiques and this variety of like things that relied on a billion other people's taste in a, in a much more nuanced way. Amazon is like sort of flattening your taste to the point where you're going to get the thing that most people in the world probably are interested in. And so you're sort of like edging out, the algorithms often edge out all of these interesting sideline pieces of taste, if that makes sense. Oh, that is fascinating, right? Like the convenience and efficiency and kind of the Rene Girard, just give me what other people think of as a t-shirt, I want that, then making the, the diversity index go way, way, way down. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's sad too, because I mean, people talk about this a lot in terms of business competitiveness, which is one way to look at it, but it just in terms of art and anything reliant upon taste. We talk about this in liminal spaces a lot, I think with like airport design, cafe design, big city design, how come you can go to any city now and find that sort of like minimalist, 
designed uh, architectural space that you can hang out in that isn't really like beautiful, but you don't hate it. And that experience can be replicated from any large city that often I would say is due to the same thing where it's like this, this space and the way we design this space is being architected by such a large amount of people's taste that it's not super appealing to anybody, but it's not offensive to anybody either. Wow. And I mean, I think that that is why when people go to suburbs, right, they have this like, ah, it all feels like plastic. Things don't feel authentic. We don't feel real. And it's because everything seems like it's cookie cutter the same. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. So for you, you are um, constantly slamming together new ideas. Uh, so for example, fashion is one of those things that's completely lost on me. If, if you're watching the video, I am wearing gray socks, gray shoes, gray sweatshirt, gray t-shirt underneath my gray sweater, because it's not something that ever has uh, struck me. But I see the stuff that you put out there. And one of the things that it makes me think of is like the future. So the other day you put out some stuff about these women wearing and women wearing these crazy costumes. And you were like, if I were running the universe or the galaxy, this is the costume I was wearing, I would wear. And I was thinking like an Isaac Asimov kind of futuristic. And I think, wow, that is so important. How in the world did you collide in with fashion and have it be something that you, you want to interact with and play with? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's super interesting in terms of the amount you're able to communicate before you talk to somebody even about yourself with what you're wearing. And like, even that tweet of what I would wear if I ruled the galaxy, it's not something I'm going to wear on the everyday basis. But I think that the exercise of thinking about like, what is the most compelling outfit for me as ruler of the galaxy or whatever it may be, is sort of a fun thing to think about whether that's like, you and your gray outfit which fashion interested people would call a grout fit very popular right now (laughs) like you may have been unknowingly compelled by this trend who knows um it's just something very interesting even to go back to that like and the iconic line from devil wears prada everything you're wearing in fashion even people who often think that they're like removed from fashion are like in this sort of like referential universe where it was informed by history and this designer who was you know, thinking about this major movement in artistic expression and all of these things all come down to ultimately often decide what you see in this like random retail store you may have just chosen because it's near your house or something like that. Yeah, all the, the I mean, it's kind of like I pencil. Are you familiar with this like poem of of like how things come together? When you think about fashion, you can't even wrap your mind around it, really. Like you start seeing like how textiles work and how how every single culture has some form of textile which means that that if you look around the world the the variability is off the charts yeah i oh textile sciences and material science are also super interesting to me i was in istanbul this past summer and it was really cool to go a lot of their art museums have so many more textile centered pieces because textiles are off obviously like a huge part of turkish history um yeah, I think that area of it, that's also like another area that combines my two favorite things, which are sort of science and art, um, where you're really getting down to like, both the utility and the utility of the material itself, like, is it stretching the way you need it to? Is it helping you like move better? But also this very like beautiful, tradition oriented, family oriented practice that's been handed down over centuries, just a very exciting 
field in general to me. Yeah, the St. Louis Art Museum is like a national treasure. It, it is an amazing art museum right in the center of the country. And downstairs, they have this textile area. And if I had not met my mentor, Pete, I would have just been like, who cares? It's a rug, right? But he would always take a tablecloth, like if, if we pulled something out, and he would hold it up and he would like fold it over to see like how close the thread were put together or how did the machine go together to knit it. And, and it's like all of these things that surround you, but it's just like water. If, if you've always been swimming in it, you don't realize how much thought and ingenuity and industry went into it. Definitely. I think that's, that's also at the root of so many things I'm interested in, which is like everything, everything around you was designed by somebody and often somebody who studies these systems of objects and like the way your shelf is made was formed by a variety of factors you can't even begin to like probably think about. And that whole world of certain like hidden language, hidden systems, hidden influences is very interesting to me. I think aesthetics often overlaps with that because people are like, oh, they made it that way because it was pretty. People buy it because it looks nice. And even then it's like, why do people think that looks nice now? Why would people not think that looked nice a hundred years ago? I don't know. I want to find out. <laughs> yeah. And, and fashion is one of those things that there, it, it changes so much that what is considered classically beautiful or classically oriented I mean, maybe that last 50 years, right? If you go back to what would have been classic 100 years ago, it would be so far afield from our aesthetic that we would be appalled by it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And it's, I think high fashion right now is also sort of like pushing back against a lot of this stuff. It's interesting, like a lot of, there's a lot of movements that are almost like anti-luxury luxury. And I'm not exactly sure why this is happening, but there's so many brands where it's like, it might be the t-shirt that just says like a single line of text across it. And you wouldn't know that it's something that was like a 500 or a thousand dollars unless you're sort of like in the know, which is also, I don't know. I find that movement fascinating. And, and like we were talking about this before, you think this is because there was such a strong pushback from celebrities and stuff that were like, we're all going through coronavirus together. However, I'm in my mansion. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, some of the some of the sort of like pajama and loungewear stuff, especially there's been a lot of articles about this, like, sudden rise in prominence of these tie dye sweatsuits that a lot of uh, a lot of like either fashion icons or sort of very wealthy people are wearing. Well, again, yeah, it's this very internal signal of like, you and I both know that this is something nice, but it's not this super just respond responded display of my own wealth that's sort of like, confronting you very aggressively in the way that is sort of rubbed a people uh, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way in the face of coronavirus i think so during this coronavirus what has changed about the way you've been consuming information or spending your time for somebody that's so self-directed and was already doing online distance learning how much has your life changed um Honestly, because I have been remote working in some sense for the last two years, I would say a lot less than the average person, although in general, I have sort of been made aware of how much I, um, how much I value just having a structure and sort of like just general, just general sort of um, rituals around everything that I'm doing every day because it really sets apart each part of the day. Um, and so that's been really nice. I've also been walking a lot, walking and reading at the same time, which you can get really good at really fast. That's been quite enjoyable. So do you do that with a book or with your phone or how do you walk and read? Explain how yeah. you learn to do that. You definitely need a book. I would say 
a book. You just got to make sure you're walking on relatively flat ground. Phone is too hard. And you've been doing this, like, would you say you've walked and read a mile? Yeah, I, I accidentally walked 10 miles the other day. I, I showed up near my friend's house and I was like, I did not realize that this much, you know, 10 miles would get me this far in Virginia. But it was exciting. I got distracted by my book. <laughs> what did you read for 10 miles? That's a totally different way to mark time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was reading um, The History of Western Science, which is something that I've been very interested in recently, which is like, how do we think about the bubbles of sort of like rationality and science and also religion now? Like, do those things overlap? Should they overlap? Why or why shouldn't they? Um, and that question throughout history, which it turns out, a lot of people have been asking for a long time, which is why it's helpful to read this sort of thing. Um, yeah, so I've been enjoying that a lot. What have been some of the discoveries out of that book? I, I mean, because I think like right now in this exact moment, what a book to be reading, because there is very, very few people have any answers at all. So you end up having faith in one story or another. The coronavirus is terrible. Masks are what we need. Or coronavirus is nothing. We don't need masks. But people are putting their faith in a story. Mm, yeah, that's true. Um, there's been a lot of just in the 13th century there, uh, which is, you know, where I was reading on the 10 miles <laughs> in that point in history. Um, there's just a lot of discussion between the church and Aristotle and his teachings of like, how things in the universe come into play, just people going back and forth. And the church was like, you know, we can, we should take science with open arms. Science off, often proves our claims of faith, proves like, Christianity largely um and some people would say okay you're practice you're not practicing philosophy correctly and you're not practicing uh your faith correctly if those two don't align it was like another big interesting movement and some big theologians at the time agreed and some disagreed but yeah it's just a time it's a timeless question and it's cool to hear people thinking about the same thing in only a slightly different way thousands of years ago I went to a uh, Jesuit university Marquette and I mm. way undervalued the the logic like the the liberal arts part of it until much later but I do remember in our philosophy classes taught by a priest that if philosophy and theology come into conflict so long mm. as the philosophy follows the fundamentals of logic then you have to question your theology because the philosophy is used as the mathematics to understand the logical arguments of the Bible. And that if they come into conflict under Jesuit cheating, it's not to say you just throw out the faith, but it's to say you've probably hit on something that is an incongruity with the way you understand God, as opposed to the laws of logic and philosophy are broken. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm so interested in that question. I think it's super hard even just in terms of like, if you look at the wideness of the way Christianity has been practiced throughout history, even currently, I have, you know, a very limited exposure to majority sort of like East Coast Protestant culture. And luckily, I went to a school where I got to talk to a lot of Orthodox people, honestly, a lot of atheist people at for surprisingly at a, um, at a Christian school, but there's just such a Christianity in, in, you know, Africa and the way that like sort of a spirituality uh, is, is more highly valued there and aesthetics are more highly valued in orthodoxy. I think a lot of times we, it's also easy to like put your own beliefs into logic, surprisingly, right? Logic should be immune from that. But I think I've recently realized how much 
my own like religious education was centered around how can we prove these things out? How can we can study apologetics and all these other things to perfectly argue our points in a way that nobody else can can argue with them? And in reality, it's sort of it's just a very difficult difficult balance. You said orthodoxy has an aesthetic. I've never thought of it that way, right? Like when I think of orthodoxy, I think like, oh, those are the people that wear the all black robes or the all white robes. But as I'm thinking about more of the orthodox, you're right. The ornateness with which they can do things maybe is because they're so singularly focused on one domain and aren't trying to please all people. Yeah. And just, I, I really um, admire, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy and the, in general, it's prominent in orthodoxy, the idea that you, we should be worshiping with our entire body, basically. And so all of your senses, it should be an experience that um, occupies all of your senses, whether that's your smell um, and uh, like just all sorts of things, your smell and your hearing in different ways that aren't just singing worship music. And for me, that's, I think that's super compelling. I think that should be more prominent part of those churches. You were mentioning um, Africa and, and or like, uh, this is what I was thinking of as you were talking about some of the spirituality. So I lived in Kenya for a while and it wasn't until I came back from there and I started studying culture from, you know, a more objective standpoint. And they talked about a, a concept called monochronic and polychronic time, which is depending on what type of culture you're in, how do you view the, the way that you spend time? So in a capitalistic industrialized culture, we have monochronic time, like everybody shows up at 8am to do what they're supposed to do. And then when you're done at five, you go home. If you're talking with somebody like you and I are talking and a meet and our meeting time is up at 530. You understand if I'm like, hey, I got to go talk to this other person. However, in polychronic time, which you know, you sometimes think of as like island time, you have this concept where people are much more relationship focused. And they're all about the experience going on right now. So if you then came to me and said, hey, Vance, it's 530, I got to go. I would be like, what? You don't value this relationship at all. So taking an industrialized mindset and dropping it into polychronic time, it makes you almost explode because you can't handle the fact that it seems like everyone is rejecting you. Yeah, I've never heard, I've never heard the explicit words before, but that makes so much sense. I'm like some of my friends who've been like either visiting family in the Middle East or living there for a while said it's just, you know, the way if you if you are interested in spending time with somebody else, they are going to like, you know, a go all out for that sort of like interpersonal that it, relationship is very valuable, but also like whatever time limits you set often are thrown out the window. It's like just we are having a great time together and that could go until like 3 a.m in the night because we're enjoying each other's presence the time here is not the most important thing which also yeah i love that honestly more people in the u.s should be like well for me it was like unnerving right because here i am trying to be the good peace corps volunteer that's sitting (laughs) and happy with like what the culture is going on but at the at the exact same time i have this swiss watch going off in my head about the things that i'm missing and like how things aren't working And I think about this in the context of church. And for me, I was not in the moment because they were, I, you know, before we went to church, I'd be like, well, how long does this last? And they'd be like two hours. And I'd be like, all right, start the clock. Right. Instead of being like, I'm in this experience and I can have it all envelop around me and, and really give, it gave me a sense of eventually you have to just give into it because if you fight it all the time, all you are is angry. And yeah. now in the, in the current world, so I am not religious, but I grew up Catholic and I decided this year, like, Hey, I want to know 
what is it that I just rejected and thought out of hand, hey, that's silly, those stories, the whole Catholic tradition. So I'm going to go to church and I'm going to try and observe it in the same way that I did when I was in Africa, where I am curious about all the things I don't understand instead of just going through the motions. And I find it to be a good exercise to try, but extremely difficult to be present in a service that I've seen a thousand times, which is the Catholic mm. mass. Mm. I, I totally understand that. It's like, I've had the very similar challenge where going through Christian education from the time I was in kindergarten, where like your Bible class is something that happens every day and chapel happens every week. Whereas like an, you know, a six year old, you're singing hymns and I mean, you have very little awareness to begin with, which there's some arguments for that. There's some arguments against that, like whether sort of this, like Aristotle talks about habituation, right? Does habituation transform you into something better? Does this over time, even if you're not interested in it, become like better for you and more compelling? Um, or is that not the case? But it was interesting to see over time as I grew up, a lot of my friends who went to public school or just had like a less sort of like rig rigorous religious structure sort of put upon them before it was something they consciously decided. There's a lot more, um, I think, just just genuine curiosity is a lot easier to have when you haven't heard all these stories a billion times and it's hard to sort of like process them with new eyes and some of the craziness that is the Bible, honestly, with, um, with new eyes. So I totally feel that. So coming from Liberty University and, and the background that you have, when you've left it and gone to this very unusual world of VC capital and trying to do AI, how do those two worlds square now, now that you're you know, 22 year old independent person away from the family? Honestly, it's, it's not. I, I thought that I, you know, again, having this education where it's apologetics and how are you going to argue your faith to the world and everybody's going to be trying to like thrusting their secular beliefs on your life. Like it's not the case. I wrote my senior <laughs> thesis at the end of high school on the realm of faith and science and how do these overlap? And I defended it in front of our headmaster and it's just see this big serious thing. And on one hand, it was great. It prepared me a lot because I read great thinkers in this space and sort of like knew what the historical precedent was. But on the other hand, like everybody is interested in these questions. Like some people have radically different beliefs than me about like Silicon Valley and the sort of state of ethics there. Um, but rarely have I met somebody who's just like, a total like utilitarian like algorithms are helping our lives and so we should just not think about it or um you know there's no very serious issues pre like brought up by this technology and so honestly it's been it's been very exciting to get into all these very serious spaces where people are truly like honestly deciding the future and see that people are really really seriously thinking about the implications and whether or not this could be used for more evil than good um it is hard because often, especially in we're sort of in this AI race against China and a number of other places, I think we have like a very challenging, we're in a challenging space where you have to decide, do you want to not develop this thing that could be used for evil and let China potentially just go for it ahead of us and have total reign on that space? Or do we develop something that could be very um, detrimental but still at least have sort of like national reign on that. What, what is the race? What's the end state? What's the point that you get out and you cross the finish line and you're like, we won. That's a great question. I don't think anybody knows. Um, 
yeah that's that's part of that's part of the challenges it's sort of like how much money do we need to put into this how much talent do we put into this like what does winning against china like is there is it is there i know ever any point where anybody like puts up the white flag and it's like okay i'm done like working on questionable technology you guys won the race i don't think that's the case and so it is sort of a false framework um yeah i think there's but what is it that people are trying to create what is it that we mm-hmm. want to make sure we create before another culture does i think just more intelligent machine learning deep learning where we can uh set up systems that are essentially making themselves more efficient and doing a number of things, whether that's like playing chess against humans. Like we've seen how humans have beat beat the greatest chess players in the world. That's like slowly expanding to more and more areas, whether that's like facial recognition, which is obviously probably the most questionable at at the center of this where, right, there's like the Uyghur camps in China and their technology has been so strong. They probably have the strongest facial recognition technology in the world where they can um, sort of identify people that they're looking to track down, which is scary. But also if we understand how that works, the security research um, can often also, we can better understand how to both infiltrate these systems, work around these systems. You can better understand how to tell people to work around facial, facial recognition systems, whether that's wearing something on your face, painting something on your face, like that's, that's a very prominent area of research at the moment. Well, that's interesting, because that's a little bit like, hey, we have to study viruses, which is dangerous in order that we can know what they can do, like we that we can find um, things to prevent. That's fascinating. I had never thought about AI research being, I mean, you could, you could frame up an entire program just on defense, not even to go on the offense. Yeah, like, so OpenAI, you know, funded by Elon Musk to sort of like democratize and democratize and open up AI to more people and make sure it's like a ethically developed space earlier this year, um, or earlier last year came out with GPT-2, which is basically like a natural language processing, like generator. So basically, um, somebody to give you an example, somebody uh, trained, trained, uh, trained this algorithm and um, had this essay generated that they submitted to a context a contest which is all other humans and the content and the essay won like in the top 10 places nobody knew that this essay was generated by ai and um before releasing gpt2 because it's now accessible by the public you can sort of play around with it and do whatever you want open ai actually paused for a little while and said we've come across some research we think that it is so transformational we're not sure about the implications. We're going to hold off a few months, think about this, and then then decide what to do. And they ended up releasing it. Um, but I, I do think it's going to be transformational, whether it's like they can almost replicate a scientific study or like a news article with the accuracy and sort of like order of the way this produces text. That would be um, knocking out human potential on a scale that people had not anticipated. And And I remember... For a long time, my, my brother, who runs a, a geothermal well drilling company, he's a very, very smart guy, lives in central Illinois, and he mm-hmm. took his accounting background and decided to do really difficult manual labor. And he talks all the time about people think that the manual labor jobs are going to be the ones that go away. But he's like, it's going to be a long time before you can turn a robot into doing plumbing underneath your sink. It's going to be a long time before you can have guys out there doing the work that we do. Not saying it can't be done, but that it yeah. won't be. And I think a lot of scientists have been sitting around being like, well, it's not going to get us. Like, we're, 
look at our intellect, that's what makes us valuable. But you're saying yeah. something that is not what people were anticipating. They were anticipating the working class man would be knocked out, not the scientist. Yeah, I mean, I think GPT-2 is definitely not like largely representative. Um, natural language processing still has a very long way to go before I think it's replacing any writing. Um, but again, it, it sort of, it, this is an idea, honestly, that got me into AI in the first place, which is this guy, Douglas Eck, who's this Google researcher, was doing this research about music and music that's algorithmically generated and was asking a lot of questions of, um, will creativity ever be something that is like algorithmically replaced? And he would say no. He would say no throughout all of time. Algorithms are often like a lot of tools that we've started out using and people were like, oh, are the, are the pen and paper going to replace our brains? You know, are we going to forget everything we've ever learned because we're using pen and paper? Like, is this going to dictate how the rest of our world develops? And maybe it was true, but we still sort of retained our human nature and managing all these technologies. And I think for a lot of cases that people imagine, like immediately like plumbing or creating art, like it's just going to totally be replaced. And that's not the case with a lot of things. There's plenty of areas to worry about. I will say that, but I think it's people often like don't have the correct framework around that, I think. Do you have like a dystopian future state in mind that you're concerned about where people don't have as much use because of the AI? Um, I would say the thing I'm most concerned about is the areas of that algorithms are applied where um something people really commonly misunderstand is that a like for a long time you know ai has been around for longer than many people realize but didn't jump forward because of the amount of data and processing power we had and so when google sort of threw its processing power and its data into these things we really started seeing stuff take off um but i would say the more concerning part is when people think that if they have put historically correct and robust data into a system that will just sort of predict things into the future that are therefore like ethical and good and everything is fine. And often we are predicting, we're taking bias from the past that might have been true, but not good and sort of pushing people into that same pathway in the future. So one is like legal systems or insurance systems where somebody is taking like a, a smaller people group might've had like higher insurance rates from the past for some data-backed reasons, whether or not they are valid reasons is questionable, but those are then projected into the future where they continue to have higher insurance rates. And it creates this like rolling system that people can't get out of. And people also don't often question because they're like, it's data-backed. We don't need to think about that. And that's not the case. Yeah, I think there's an interesting thing that goes on with science. And I see it right now going on because of coronavirus, which is the is-ought dilemma. And I think a lot of people... Once you hear this framework, you're like, man, I guess I'd never really thought about that. But it is, for people that don't know, the, you, science discovers what is true. But what is true does not say then what we ought to do is. And there are a lot of people in the scientific community that they grab an is that says, hey, the data shows us that within this error measure, we can do these things. So therefore, we ought to do this. And that is a science-backed reason and what they've right. forgotten is somewhere between when they had the is and the ought is a value that they imputed into that and algorithms yeah. like when we trust them to tell us what we should do they are putting an ought from that they've derived from their is into it 
Yeah. And I think something really interesting there is a lot of people think that if, again, if it's data backed, you're, you're avoiding making that odd entirely. Like you're taking the past and things that occurred naturally. And we're just projecting that into the future because to project our own sort of like ethical concerns or just like ethics broadly onto an empirical system would be bad, right? Like we can't force our own views on other people, but often what ends up happening is that because nobody asks a question about what is being promoted in the future here, it's often something even worse than I think we would come up with on our own and that's just projected into the future. And so, yeah, and, and also even with the is, often we're sure what the is thing was because of and that's not the case. So it's like, again, you saw that you've like, this people group with super high insurance rates and you're like, these people were more likely to have like, car accidents or you know their car was more likely to get stolen or something like that and maybe that's because of the system that was around them rather than those people and any core trait about like them as a people group which is almost always the case yeah and i can imagine that things like actuarial sciences being almost intoxicating to believe like look at all this data we have and sure there may be a little bit of bias in there but if we just keep dumping the data in there eventually we'll come out with a with a great answer because we yeah. have so much more information yeah it's a, i mean it's a very powerful feeling right like that's the other thing i think algorithms and ai are sort of concentrating this inequality because all of a sudden it's like the people who write these systems your bias is then almost executed on such a extraordinarily large amount of people um yeah, it's, it's a very powerful position to be in. And it's almost more dangerous because it doesn't seem like power is there. You know, it's like, it's not the future where robots are clearly taking over humanity. It's the future where using this app that makes your life a little bit more easy is like putting power into the hands of everybody who's dictating your future in a way you don't even realize. So you seem very bold and confident and optimistic and uh, some, somebody that you're that is like easy to cheer for you to like, hey, I want to know what Nicole thinks about the future. What about the future are you excited about that you think people are missing right now? They don't they don't see that like we have these great things coming. Maybe cool. you don't have them. I, you just seem so optimistic. No, I definitely have them. I think Medical technology is something specifically I've been pretty excited about for a while, and my excitement is only climbing, I think. Um, yeah, I went through that medical accelerator with the Nova Hospitals, sort of researching um, how we can get better at diagnosing different types of cancer um, with data science, machine learning, and obviously HIPAA regulations and all sorts of data privacy regulations have been sort of a unique challenge, you know, some of the highest data regulations in place in any industry. Um, and so I think there's a lot of things like federated learning that represent a big shift coming soon. We've seen a lot of industries transformed by AI and sort of- What is federated learning? Uh, federated learning is something that, if you have Google Keyboard on your phone, for example, uh, utilizes this technology where basically you are taking um, personal and often sensitive data, like you probably don't want to Google people to be reading every single text you're sending, um, and they sort of basically come up with a local um, takeaway or abstraction or algorithmic change that they are going to send to the cloud to add to their Google keyboard, like broader algorithmic systems. But they're not sending every single text that you sent, every piece of personal data um, to 
the cloud and to Google broadly. So it represents a lot less um, of a security risk. It is still, there's a lot of questions about, you know, can you reverse engineer from that abstraction any of these personal data? Or like if you have a large amount of data, could you work backwards to the data that might be tied to you? People are still researching that. But um, I think we're seeing more and more applications that are a good indicator that soon we'll see that that sort of uh, industry transformation in medicine. So this would include like if I have my Apple watch and I'm going running and Apple then says, we want to take some of your fitness data and we don't want to know anything about you in particular, but we want to know about people that are your age that are exercising in this way. What is their resting heart rate? Because that can help us understand some other thing about medicine in some way. Right. Yeah. That's actually a great example because, um, Apple, Apple watches, the industry is very segmented again by the people who have large amounts of data. And so people for a long time have been trying to say, okay, if we just get a bunch of people to wear our heart tracker, whatever, we can study heart disease or whatever it might be. But because Apple already has such a large portion of users, they made an agreement with Stanford, I think in 19, or sorry, 2017 or 2016 to do a bunch of heart disease research again, because it's so easy to get people to say oh yeah like i already trust apple they've been fairly good about my privacy i will give them you know the ability to look at high level takeaways about my health and heart health and exercise so yeah it's a great example yeah i feel like i'm probably cavalier about how much i'm i'm like hey you want that data okay like only just (laughs) recently i've started seeing spencer wells who's a guy i interviewed on the podcast he's a population geneticist have like some problems with 23 and me. And for me, I was like, Hey, if they, I'm going to give you my DNA cause it's lying around everywhere. And I want to know what you can tell me about my, my, you know, congenital conditions or, or whatever those are. I've been, I would say cavalier. Would you warn people against that? Or do you, do you think, nah, it's for the most part, the federated learning is good. Um, <laughs> this is a super, I was discussing this with a friend yesterday, actually. I, in my early teens, actually quite rebelled against my parents who are both technology people and were both warning me about data privacy from very early on. They were like, if you have a Twitter and you're doing this, your data is going to these people, yada, yada. And I was like, oh, this is so ridiculous. I found <laughs> this startup where I could sign up and um, uh, attach all my social media and I would get paid for my data. <laughs> and so I was making like $5 a month or something in eighth grade of my own data because I felt very rebelliously I needed to... Uh, you know, sort of push back. <laughs> it's like a kid going and smashing mirrors and walking underneath right. the ladder. Yeah. <laughs> the technologist child rebellion. But um, I would say for me personally, honestly, I don't live by my own advice. Like I'm very aware and I'm interested in how people are data collecting. I wouldn't say I'm just like, yes, take my data. Yes, take my data. I wouldn't do 23andMe or anything either because I think the interesting thing, most companies at this point are a data play, right? So like ride sharing, if you are taking, um, doing those like car rental, like Zipcar, 23andMe, all of those are often like, their real business is eventually going to be like, we have the largest collection of where people are driving, why they need to rent cars, people's genetics, genetic data that eventually will probably be used for other things. Those are the cases where it's most concerning to me where, I mean, Google and Facebook is arguably the case too. Um, it's hard. I personally say at this point, it's, you can't often those like last steps of saying, no, don't share my data are not going to do a whole lot unless you're totally off the grid. There's a good chance you're already giving that data to some people. So like, yes, I'm an advocate for making conscious decisions, but I think you have to be 
aware of the large data collecting ecosystem you're living in to begin with. In the ag world, this data collection is off the charts because mm. the, the farmers have the ability to track basically every square foot of their farm. If they have the right equipment on their tractor, the way that they plant, what they spray, how they harvest, and you could potentially make a case that if you're the company that is um, puts a little USB puck into a tractor, there is the potential that as that tra as that farmer is harvesting their crops, the the whoever is collecting that data can say, hey, we know that the bushels per acre in this area is going to be about this much, so we can start trading futures. And so whoever grabs that data and has it first, there's potential for it to be misused. And I think one of the biggest challenges is you have these farmers that they need that data in order to make smart decisions for the next year of planting, but they don't know, can I trust the people I'm giving this data to, to not use it against me? And then they have their kids going away to college and coming back and trying to explain like, we could use all this technology, but they don't know is the cost of using that data, giving up my data worth that? And maybe it's worth it over one year or two years, but what happens over five years or 10 years? Right. That's, that's A, so interesting. I'm going to go Google more about that after we're done. But B, that's a perfect example of, I think, sort of what I'm thinking about when people are like, should I just be super security focused? The trade-off is often that if all your competitors are using these data predictive services and data collection services, it's not just a choice of like, am I okay with these people having my data? It's a choice of, am I suddenly like, okay with making making this business decisions a lot harder because I don't have the leg up that everybody around me has decided they're okay with. Um, and so, I don't know, I, there's a lot of small steps you can take, but again, it's like another burden on your back, which is like, if a company is not clear about what they're using that data for, or like talk to your friends about that. If you have, a, again, if you're like an ag person, you probably have a lot of friends who are thinking about the same thing, get them together, write letters, call the people who are working as data officers at these companies and sort of like push for more transparency. So you can tell whether that's the case or you can begin to work on like that being more transparent, but 100% somebody that can explain what is going on to the farmers uh, would have value right now in the market because mm. the, the farmers are highly intelligent. They're running multi-million dollar businesses. There's, they have data, they have more reams of data than, than most people and they like they are the companies that are selling them these technologies are trusted seed companies right but now they're coming back and saying well we also have this other digital technology so they look there and say well who can we trust and i feel like a lot of the east coast even west coast venture capital that's flooding in to try and do ag tech the big bridge that's missing right now is people living in the cities being connected with farmers and saying like, what is your actual problem? So you could develop the greatest AI technology in the world, but if you don't have the farmer's trust on what you're going to do with that data, they're never going to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally fair. I feel like, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff. Like I was listening to this trucking podcast, which is super interesting. And there was a guy this guy who has been a trucker, like a long haul trucker for years, hosts the podcast and he's going to their yearly convention. Um, he sees one of his old friends at Uber uh, Freight has hired to work for Uber. And it was interesting, sort of the language he talked about. This guy made a very compelling case as a worker because he knew so uh, intimately this industry that like 
nobody else in Uber really had taken the time to understand. He like got the day to day of like, okay, these new long, long haul freight regulations are really shutting us down. How do we deal with this in the future of technology and use AI, you know, in an actually effective, but also trustworthy way for people in our industry? Yeah, trucking has been, I had a guy on twice in during coronavirus about trucking that we had all these regulations in and they, they had like, how many hours can you drive? And the, and the computer will just right. shut your truck off. Like, you don't, right. you know, it's not like you can be like, Oh, I can just go another couple miles. It, it just yeah. shuts you off. And, uh, but now with coronavirus, because the supply chains were so in danger and there weren't very many people on the interstates, they took the regulations off and the truckers wow. for the first time in five or 10 years have gotten to put the hammer down. So talking with truckers okay. right now, at least for the last couple of months, it's been like they got to return to the wild west of, of hauling as fast and as much as they can. It's a wild world. That's so cool. I, I've, yeah, I've been following that regulation and it's super interesting because it seems like so many more unsafe situations have often come out of this regulation where somebody is pulling their truck into the thing and like they can't back all the way up to the delivery station because it cuts off a few seconds before they get there. Like a lot of that is super interesting. That's, that's really interesting yeah so what do you think the world will look like in uh two weeks i think today is what may 15th oh yeah may 15th i think i mean a more and more huge tech companies are announcing that people you know it's okay for people to work from home for, until like 2021 or forever in twitter's case right or forever in twitter's case um i think slowly the realization is sort of settling in that this is not a okay, once things are opening, open, like the world goes back to normal, which is, it's understandable that people want it to be that way. And I think it's hard to process that that's not going to be the case. But I think it will have set in a little bit more that the way to get back to even close to normal is start researching and thinking about like, what the new normal is and how we can like quickly work towards that. Um, which isn't just like, it's not just a vaccine. It's like how we interact in places of business where a large people, amount of people have to go in and out, like all that type of thing. I think people start thinking about very seriously. I think one of the interesting factors that comes from people being able to work from home is now you don't have to live in the East Coast or West Coast corridor right along. And, and now you could start living in Provo, Utah or Boise, Idaho or St. Louis, Missouri. And you could choose like, I'm going to try and make the same salary I was making before in Silicon yeah. Valley. Only now I can buy a way bigger house because I can, I can live in a city that's less expensive. Yeah. I'm excited about that. I mean, it's hard because I think some of the value will always come from like your network. Like, can you walk out the door to dinner and have this many other people who are in your industry come and sort of share their thoughts in person, which obviously is hard to replicate. But I'm excited because I think there's been a generation of, you know, sort of between millennial and Gen Z people who are have just been coastal hopping almost with every new job possibility that comes up. And the, the importance of sort of like a community and long-term roots and investing in people around you that will be there no matter what has been sort of like schlocked to the side in the face of career stuff. I mean, that's also just how people in the U.S. think. Um, but I hope that this will sort of enable people to be around community that they really value for longer periods of time. But To me, that being in coronavirus in St. Louis, just down the street from my wife's parents, 
I mean, it was like a miracle, right? Like it was, yeah. it was something that when it first happened, when my family members, my wife's parents are you know, going to move close to me, like I was not super excited about that. But then you get into a situation like this and you're like, thank God, because now we can be in a little whale pod. We can uh, self-quarantine together. And it was yeah. something that in earlier in my career would just never have been something that would be valuable to me. Yeah. Yeah. It really like, and quarantine is also just really making clear to everybody like the long-term stuff that is important to them, which is, which is cool too. You know, it's a underappreciated side effect for sure. So I'm going to let you go, but I wanted to ask you one more question. What is it that you think people should be paying attention to that they might not even be aware of? Oh, in life? Or just right now. I mean, you could take that as an immediate moment. It's a good question. This is gonna make me just think for the rest of the day about this. Um, I don't know. I think I don't know. I would say I'm gonna give the same answer that I would give even if coronavirus weren't happening, which is just like things that you find interesting that nobody else thinks is interesting, whether it's about the way the world is operating in the face of quarantine, like new behavior that is emerging, new patterns that you're seeing. Like, don't just think about that thing mentally and throw it away like talk about those things with other people I think that's been the most rewarding for me on Twitter is everybody else is seeing those little things that you ignore often and so much of the most interesting insight comes from paying attention to those things amen amen and when you find somebody that said something you don't understand like just be curious about it instead of saying no I either need to kill this idea or I need to see it succeed just be curious I'm totally down with that so if people yeah. wanted to find you on, on uh, Twitter and to follow the craziness that you put out there, how would they do that? My handle is at N and then Williams is my last name and then 030. So, you know, if you hear my handle and you follow me, send me a tweet. All right. I will uh, put that in the show notes. And right now, although it changes all the time, you have a little bunny um, in your uh, in your profile photo, don't you? Yes. Yes. It's a Sanrio character. So the world of Hello Kitty, the bunny is one of Hello Kitty's friends. <laughs> Nicole, I this has been a, a to, I've been a total pain in the ass to schedule with. I'm so grateful you did this. This is a wonderful way to start the day. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you.